One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. We're heading into an Arsenal-free weekend. That is because there are FA Cup ties happening and we are not in the FA Cup. However, we do play again relatively soon. We've got a trip to the city ground to take on Nottingham Forest on Tuesday where we will face former gunner Matt Turner, who, of course, for the 90 minutes will be imbued with all the skills and qualities that a top-level goalkeeper needs. He'll have the safe hands of David Seaman, the long-passing ability of David Beckham. He'll be a better shot-stopper than a bulletproof vest. Accept it. This is what we're going to have to face next Tuesday. But that, of course, is next week. So... We're just going to have to bide our time and hope that the five goals that we scored against Crystal Palace are a sufficient confidence boost to be able to offset, uh, you know, the Matt Turner heroics that we're bound to see. It has been a pretty quiet week. However, there are a few bits and pieces going on. We do, of course, have a podcast for you today, uh, obviously, because, you know, you've downloaded it and you're you're listening to it. So that was a pretty stupid thing to say. But in terms of, of Arsenal news, it's been relatively quiet. A couple of things have happened today, Thursday, that we'll get into. And I thought it might be interesting to have a little bit of a discussion, a bit of a, a deep dive into the way that Arsenal have spent money since Mikel Arteta um, took the job of head coach and, and subsequently became manager. There is, of course, at this moment in time, a lot of focus on striker, a lot of focus on Arsenal and what they can do up front. And it's quite interesting to look at where the money has been spent until now and whether that gives us any indication of where the money might be spent in the summer. So we will delve into that, among other things. And I'm delighted to welcome to the show today to discuss all that is Lewis Ambrose. Hello, Lewis. Hello, Andrew. This is a Weird. How are you coping with this? Like we're playing sometimes, and there's ages between games and all of that. I don't know. I mean, I think this weekend will probably be a bit sort of. Oh, wish we were playing a game of football, but obviously we're not in the FA Cup, so we've got to sit on the sidelines while other teams do what it is that they're going to do, and then we've got to wait till Tuesday, I suppose. So it's sort of like being on Monday night football, but just with a little bit extra on top. <laughs> Tuesday night football. Tuesday night football. That's what it is. A lot of games on next week as well, you know, so um, it's mm -hmm. a fairly full schedule next week. And, uh, you know, obviously there's big games coming up for Arsenal after Nottingham Forest. Uh, Liverpool next weekend, of course, which is going to be fairly seismic in the, uh, in the chase for the title, you'd have to say. But that is a bridge we can cross when we come to it. What about you? Are you well able to cope? 
I am. It was. I think it's a bit of a shame not playing this weekend. After mm. we sort of we had that mini break, which probably didn't come at a bad time. Uh, after the results we'd had over Christmas and New Year, um, and then last after last weekend, as the tonic that we were all looking for, I would have been really looking forward to watching us play this Saturday or Sunday. But never mind. Yeah. We don't have to deal with the FA's horrible scheduling and be given like a Thursday or Friday night FA Cup game. So that's true. That. That's true. I mean, you know, we, we had that break and then came back and won five nil. So maybe the, the answer is to spread the season out over about <laughs> two years and just give us 10 days between every game and we'll win them all five nil. And finally the silver world will be back, uh, back at Arsenal. Um, we have some bits and pieces to talk about. Some things have been going on today. First is Arsenal announcing Richard Garlick uh, will be appointed as managing director in the summer of 2024 when Vinay steps down from his role as CEO. So it's a very young dynamic, I guess you would say, Arsenal executive setup. And this one seems to make quite a bit of sense. Um, he's been doing a lot since he arrived, uh, you know, across the men's, women's and, and youth teams involved in the transfers. We saw him, you know, liaising a lot with Edu during the Amazon documentary as well. Um, so an interesting appointment, but, you know, ultimately one that it seems to be relatively stress-free from an Arsenal perspective. I think that's the main thing, stress-free and stability at the club that we've got now. I mean, we're, we're not that far removed from Raul Senye and mm. Sven Mislintat and Unai Emery and, and everybody battling for a slice of the action and all wondering who was going to sort of become kingmaker at Arsenal as, as <laughs> uh, um, Arsenal left and obviously Ivan Gazidis left and two huge holes or one massive hole uh, appeared at the club and I think there was, at the time, even back then, a bit of concern that there might be a bit of squabbling or jostling for position in the hierarchy. Um, we are a long way from that now where, yeah, it feels like there there is stability where somebody in a role as important as, as Vinay's leaves. Mm -hmm. And it just means you shuffle the pieces a little bit. And, you know, as you said, Edu obviously has a close working relationship with Richard Garlick. Um, and then at the other end of, of his job with Mikel Arteta as well, and the stability and everybody being on the same page as each other, I think mm. is the most important thing at, at that boardroom level um, to making sure that we sort of have a shared vision. All of them have a shared vision and sure. we keep making progress as a club. I wonder, does it, you know, then leave a hole for somebody to step in and do some of the stuff mm. that he has been doing? I guess it probably will. Um, the details on that we, we don't have uh, at this point. But, yeah, certainly interesting. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a high-profile role, isn't it? It's one of those, you know, managing director now of Arsenal. Um, I suppose it's interesting as well that it is different from CEO, which is what Vinay, I think, is mm -hmm. – uh, that's his job title. Um, but managing director seems to suggest something slightly different in terms of responsibilities, um, maybe a little more football-focused and not quite as, as business-focused. Yeah, and I, I don't find that a massive surprise, personally, because um, that's where Richard Golick's expertise is. Mm. And the club of, obviously, the Cronkies over the past few years have 
nudged Tim Lewis further and further into a, an important role at the mm. club, and may, you know maybe he absorbs some of Vinay's responsibilities, and and Richard Garlick res, um, absorbs the rest. Uh, I think the Cronkies themselves, um, uh, or Josh in particular, is at least a lot more present than he was mm-hmm. three, four, five years ago, and, and much more present than beyond that. So, you know, you wonder how much he has a say in, in the commercial aspect of the club and that sort of thing, um, you know, between them, Richard Garlick. I don't, we'll see how it all divides up. I think, who knows? I don't think a, a new CEO now will be appointed at all, really. Uh, and if so, only in name and not not doing what, Vinay did uh, to me, sort of like a you know a more responsibilities for a commercial director maybe makes more sense, and then you've got that sort of commercial side and football side uh, working together, but both kept very separate yeah. from each other. The Deloitte money list came out, and you know, mm. uh, look, it's one of those things that sparks discussion. I'm not really sure how important it is in in the grand scheme of things, but, you know, modern-day football fans, we like to have every bit of information we can about our football clubs, and, you know, if there's things we can be happy about or unhappy about, the more information we have on that, the better. Some interesting numbers from an Arsenal perspective. Revenue grew by 23% in 2023 to over 500 million euros, uh, 532.6 million euros, Deloitte estimate. I think it's fair to say that they... Um, you know, I'm not saying this is just sort of made up stuff, right? But, you know, it's presented in a uh, far bit for me to like cast aspersions on people who know what they're talking about when it comes to money and stuff like that. But this sort of league is, uh, anyway, over 500 million. Match day revenue made up 22% of the total. Um, broadcast revenue uh, was up. Commercial revenue increased from 190 or 295 million uh, from 167 million. This is all in in euros. But Arsenal are not in the top ten. I thought it was really interesting to note that when it comes to commercial revenue, Arsenal are a long way behind Tottenham. Yeah. Like a long way. I think Tottenham's commercial revenue is 261 million euros. Arsenal, as we just said, 195 million euros. You know, there are... We don't sell the the naming rights as well. Yeah, that's true. There's a long-term deal on the the stadium rights. Um, Look, I think we have to accept that there is, or that that Arsenal have been through a difficult period in the last number of years, and we're coming through it, and and we're in a much better place now, but there were uh, seasons without Europe. Um, there was a season without Europe, a lot of Europa League football. Uh, you know the 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 brand value, I guess, falls mm-hmm. when you're not in the Champions League. If that's too cynical a way to put it, or or whether that's maybe the right way to put it, I don't know. Um, and Tottenham have had you know their most successful period in living history, and of course even with that, have not won a single trophy, it's fair to point out. But, you know, does that strike you as a an obvious area of improvement for Arsenal, the commercial revenue, which, like every revenue stream, allows you to do a little bit more with, you know, team building, squad building, recruitment and, and all that? Yeah, of course it does. I mean, when you look at the clubs above us, that's where the that's really where the money is that they're getting that we aren't. Uh, if you if you look through the 
the, the stuff that Deloitte released today. So, you know, there's an element of you know, broadcasting, especially not being in the Champions League um, for so long. But the Champions League means eyeballs. Winning means eyeballs. You become a brand that everyone wants to be associated with, and that's the big difference. Mm. Uh, not not with Tottenham, but with, you know, <laughs> up there, Liverpool and Real Madrid and, and Barcelona and Manchester United. I mean, winning, maybe not. Eyeballs, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the off-pitch stuff all becomes much, much easier to, to negotiate and renegotiate when the on-pitch stuff is good. One thing I've noticed of the last few contract extensions we've had with Adidas or with the with Emirates is that we always seem to announce a record-breaking, like a, a not for Arsenal, but for English football. Uh, but it seems to me the last few times that we've announced our Adidas deal, and it's always one year later that Man United and Liverpool and Chelsea are announcing their deals with Adidas or Nike. And yeah. I wonder if there's something in that that like, we're just behind the market rate because uh, we sort of get a new deal and it sets records for how much it brings in. But then if everyone else is renewing a year later, then we Mm. are no longer sort of leading. So uh, over the course of that 12 months, obviously we would be. And then the remaining three, four years of the contract, we're trailing what other clubs are maybe bringing in. So I wonder if there's something there. It's just something I've wondered to myself before. Um, But yeah, being in the Champions League consistently, I think is, is the main thing. And then other clubs have different revenue streams that we sort of opt away from as well. Like Tottenham, uh, I don't know how much they bring in, but they had Beyonce concerts uh, at the stadium this summer. They've got NFL games mm. every season um, hosted there. So, you know, there are different revenue streams, different ways of making I guess that would count as their, money. their yeah. commercial revenue, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. I think I saw the sort of the breakdown and it meant uh, an article somewhere today about this and it mentioned those two events specifically. So, you know, I think we'll... Um, that's a gap uh, somewhere that we don't make as much money. There, there'll be the occasional concert at the Emirates, but that's about it. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I, you know, the TV money will go up through the champions, being in the Champions mm-hmm. League. Um, the the match day money will go up. Season ticket prices are more expensive this season than they were last season. So hopefully we're getting better and better on the pitch over the last few years. And hopefully that starts to be reflected in this over the next few years. Yeah. The most interesting thing for me was the, the wages to revenue ter- uh, ratio where like two years ago, um, our wage bill was at 75% of our revenue and it's now down to 51%, which I think was by far the lowest. Or I think Tottenham is, is sort of down there as well. Um, but the other, the other top clubs in England, we were, way lower yeah um, you know Chelsea are at 79 percent uh Manchester City 59 Liverpool 63 percent and that just I look at that and I think like we talk about Richard Garlick's promotion that's a job that he's had a massive part of getting control of that wage bill and firstly it's now under control you know it's sustainable but secondly you look at that 51 percent you look at Liverpool and Chelsea way way higher and you think right then there's room for us to grow that wage bill to attract players and also to keep our most important players with wage increases over the next few windows for sure like you know there have been a lot of renewals as well when you think about players who've who've signed new deals Bakayo Saka Martinelli William Saliba a new deal for Ben White incoming. There's a new deal for Tommy Asu incoming. Ramsdale signed a new deal. 
probably regrets a little bit now, but, you know, he, he did. Um, you know, all the players that we wanted to tie down, Martin Odegaard, all the players we wanted to tie down to new deals, we got tied down to, to new deals. And part of that, of course, was reducing the wage bill, getting rid of some of those big earners mm-hmm. and getting, you know, those deals that just, um, yeah, were restrictive in a way. And I think um, the way the financial side of things operates, you know, your your wage bill has an impact on, you know, how your finances are calculated versus what you've spent and and all that. So it is part of, of how Arsenal have been able to spend. And, you know, as you say, it looks sustainable now. And hopefully if the football side of things continues along this way, a rising tide lifts all boats and that, that goes into commercial revenue and you can find, you know, higher profile more um, suitable partners, I don't know, than, you know, some fucking dodgy crypto tokens. Um, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. You would hope uh, that, that that is the case. Um, we're going to talk about money in a little bit now, uh, in a second, um, because we're going to have a look at what Arsenal have spent over the last little while uh, in the context of strikers and forwards and things like that. But um, the other thing that that happened today is the return of of Thomas Partey to full training, having been out of action since, I think, October. Um, And he uh, underwent surgery. Whether it's coincidence that it's come two days after Ghana have gone out of (laughs) AFCON, I don't know. But to what extent do you think this is... um, you know, a boost on pure footballing terms and what it might mean for Mikel Arteta and how he can use the resources that he has available to him for the rest of this season. I say with a very big if and a big caveat, Partey can remain fit between now and the end of the season. Yeah, there's a very big question. His availability, obviously, going forward after what we've had since he joined the club pretty much. Mm. But yeah, it, it's a big difference. I think if you look at the big games, he'd quite often played Jorginho with Declan Rice. And I think Thomas Partey offers a, a lot of that passing ability, the vision, the, the pushing the ball up the pitch that Jorginho offers, but obviously with a different physical capability. Uh, if that's not staying fit, it's at least getting those long legs moving and being able to cover more of the pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw at the start of the season that Mikel Arteta, who I think is sort of, you know, largely over the course of the, the last while or the, the opening few months of the season at least, gone back to last season's setup. But we saw Thomas Partey line up at right back in the first few games of the season. Um, I'm not advocating for that as a genius idea, but we've had a period where we've had some iffy results and Ben White has not looked fit and we've had nobody to replace him at right back. Mm. Uh, we've had at the same time uh, and lack of, an, uh, we've lacked the ability at times to break teams down and to create chances. And Thomas Party playing at right back just gets that extra midfielder on the pitch. You know, he's at right back, but he wasn't at right back. We got the ball. We had the ball 70% of the time at, at Palace and uh, in the opening game against Nottingham Forest. And he was at holding midfield, like as soon as we had possession. Uh, we lost Timber, we lost Party, and we've not seen that approach from Mikel Arteta mm. again since. So I think, you know... I don't know how the manager reflects on how those things looked and worked out. And I think he would have liked more than just two games to try and test it and see how it went. But I think he was trying to get an extra player on the pitch. I, I think, think that's, you look at, yeah. 
and you look at Kai Havertz and he is he's been signed for what he'll do in the final third. And if you compare to Granit Xhaka last season, you know, he's not taking the ball off the centre backs. He's not driving us up the pitch. He's meant to just arrive at the right moment in the box, get on the end of something, attract a defender, create some space. That's what Kai Havertz does in that central midfield role. Mm-hmm. Well, then somebody else is going to have to have a lot more of the ball for us to dominate matches the way that we would like to. And the first two games of the season, I don't think it's a, an accident or a coincidence that Thomas Partey and Declan Rice played together, but in a way that allowed Havertz and Odegaard to also play. Mm. Like I think that was Arteta experiment in trying to find ways to fit more of these players on the pitch because he knew what he signed Havertz for and what he won't give to the team. And some of that has to be replaced somewhere. Uh, again, I'm not saying it was like a brilliant idea, but I'm also not willing to write an idea off after two matches Sure, uh, seeing it. So, or well, one and a half, because we went down to 10 men at Palace. So, you know, I think it just, there's been an air of predictability or the same sort of 11s going out and both in midfield and whether people like it or not in defence. Uh, Thomas Party's availability would just give Mikel Arteta a few more options. Yeah, we had a question from Adam Singh on the Discord. Adam Singh, one, two, three, four, five, six. That could also be his password. Uh, yeah. I, hope, I hope not. He said, if, when, when Party returns and stays fit, do you think we'll see him playing right back again and adopting the formation we had at the start of the season? See, I'm, I, I, I differ um, from you in that I remain thoroughly unconvinced about Partey at right back at the start of the season as a tactical experiment as much as mm-hmm. it's connected to what was and wasn't going on with Gabrielle at that time. And Gabrielle mm-hmm. was sitting on the bench and the consequence of that was Partey at right back. And I know people can make the case that you've made, for example, or the case that Alexander Zinchenko wasn't available at the start of the season. And, you know, that that maybe required one of the fullbacks to invert and Partey perhaps was best placed to do that. Um, but I'm not at all really convinced by that. I think it's not impossible that we might see Partey at right back between now and the end of the season if something happens to to Ben White, because I, I think from... From what we understand about cruciate ligament injuries, I wrote about this in the blog during the week, I think people are maybe setting the expectations of Jurian Timber's return a little too Mm -hmm. high. Like he's still got quite a way to go in his recovery. If you compare it to other players who are out, it's normally in and around the 250-day mark when they make their... Uh, their comeback. Yeah. You you get back on the grass and you, you, you can kick a football around and it's still two or three months until you can play Premier Exactly. So, you know, I, did, I had a look at uh, Elneny, Bellerin, Chambers and Rob Holding. And I think it worked out an average of around 260 uh, days between their injury and the surgery on their injury and their comeback. And at the time of writing, which was only this week, it had been 161 days since Timber had the surgery on his ACL. So I think he's, you know, if we see him before the end of the season, brilliant. But was don't... it was it in Dubai where he was training on grass for, yeah. for the first time that they showed us? Right, yeah. he was back on the grass. I had a look when that happened. Uh, when is it just a, an ACL injury that stuck in my mind from recent times? I had a look at the first news story I could find for uh, Thomas Party uh, for. Van, Virgil van Dijk returning to, oh, yeah. to the grass after doing his ACL as a Liverpool player. That was uh, like 
early February. He didn't play at the Euros that summer. Well, that's it. Like uh, you know, Thibaut so, Courtois was talking about it as well. He did his ACL in in August, and he said. If I can play before the end of the season, I'll be doing well. Maybe there's a difference physiologically between a six foot five gigantic goalkeeper with big, long, gangly legs and someone like Jurian Timber. But he mm-hmm. said, like, I can't play at the Euros. I'm not going to be ready to play at the Euros because, you know, I've had this, this serious injury. So, like, the Timber thing seems premature to me. And I'm, I'll be delighted when we get him back. I think he's a very good player and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing him back. But I, I don't see him as an option anytime soon, which is why I think it's not beyond the realms of possibility that we could see Partey at um, at right at right back if something happens to Ben White, or if Ben White needs a rest, or if there is a game where you know he he feels like okay, well you know I can rest Ben White for this game and play Partey there and give him some minutes. But as a as a sort of tactical uh, innovation. I just don't see it. I think it was connected to other things. But let's imagine Partey as a midfield option. Does that give Arteta much more room for maneuver with his front five, for example? So you, when he gets fully fit again, because I don't think you just put him in and expect him to play the six straight away, but if there's a point, you know, in, in a month's time where between now and the end of the season he can uh, viably operate in that deep-lying midfield role, it means you can push Declan Rice further forward. Mm-hmm. You've got twin eights, let's say, with Rice and, and Odegaard. It allows you maybe to play Kai Havertz in a different position, perhaps more often up front or, you know... It, is there? Well, and we saw in the, the, yeah. the FA Cup game against Liverpool, we saw Rice really play next to Jorginho. It, it wasn't that mm. three-man midfield that we've become used to. It was much more the the sort of two deeper players and, and yeah. Martin Odegaard up ahead of them. And that's the option to me for it's the big games, right? We talked about it in the summer with with the Community Shield and that lineup, and and it felt like back then that Party Rice Odegaard felt like a midfield for big games it felt like a midfield for when you want to keep the ball and slow things down but you also want to be able to hit teams on the break you want a defensive solidity in there that keeps you in games uh when i mentioned all of those things the thing that comes to mind for me is two-legged champions league matches and, and particularly the away games these are the games you know like liverpool at home in the in the fa cup is is that sort of ilk of match mm it's that level of opposition where we decided to play a little bit safer. We didn't have fullbacks, or especially on the left with with Ben uh, Alexander Zinchenko out. We didn't have a left back who could come in and provide that extra man in midfield. Jakob Kivior had done a poor job of it at Fulham the weekend, uh, mm-hmm. the few days earlier. So we decided to leave that idea and go back to a sort of a more straightforward, I don't know, more traditional back four where the left back stays as the left back and and gets up the touchline and supports the winger. Uh, Ben White did the same on the right-hand side and Jorginho and Rice sat in there in midfield uh, with Rice, you know, given the license to move forward, but not as much, not in the same positions that you'd expect Kai Havertz to be in. Odegaard didn't drop as deep and sort of remained as that number 10. Uh, and we just sort of looked to, to bait that press, I guess, with the extra man at the back, with the extra midfielder holding back. You soak in the Liverpool press and, and then you've got a bit more space to play. And if you mm. go over them or through them. So I, to me, that's the that's what I'd be looking at with Partey's return is 
you know, on top of the option to leave Declan Rice out of a game, which we don't really have at the moment, uh, obviously came off with that tweaked hamstring uh, last Saturday. You look at the squad, you can't, we just can't really afford to not play Declan Rice in any game. Yeah. Uh, I think if Thomas Party's back, you can play games, not that we would choose too often, but you can play games without Declan Rice. You can leave him on the bench if he's, you know, had a heavy, if he's had a knock in training, if he's had a big game the last the last couple of weeks and you think his legs are getting a little bit heavy, you can afford to leave him on the bench. Mm. You can play Thomas Party. Um, and yeah, like I say, the Champions League games that we'll have coming up and, you know, Liverpool at home, maybe it's a bit soon, but we've got City away, we've got Tottenham away, we'll have Man United away. Those feel like games where you'll see Party and Rice line up together if they're both available. Yeah. And of course, being back in training is is not the same as being match fit. So it might take him a few weeks, as you say, to get back. But, you know, it is a boost to have a, you know, to have that option and to have that uh, that kind of a player in midfield where, you know, we have felt precariously light uh, at times, you know, where it's Rice and Jorginho at the moment and Mohamed Elneny's away at, at AFCON. Um, you know, there, there's a conversation I think to be yeah. had about uh, midfield in the summer, it, but it just takes one, yeah, one late tackle, and suddenly for three games you're like you can't afford one injury or anything because yeah. you'll be absolutely screwed. Well, let's uh, touch wood uh, on that. So, look, I want to move to what I think is a really interesting uh, discussion because there's a lot of talk about Arsenal buying a striker and Arsenal adding to their forward line. And it occurred to me, you know, we haven't really spent a huge amount on forwards since Mikel Arteta took over. So I had a look at all the transfers, and you and I are looking at a little bit of a spreadsheet here, and I'll I'll post a, a screenshot of this um, spreadsheet that people can have a look at in the show notes or they can look at it on, on arsblog.com. And I've broken it down between... You know, positions, goalkeepers, defenders, midfielders, and I have attackers. Uh, but I think we can have a little um, back and forth about what constitutes what in, in this regard. I think there are some that are very obvious. Once you get into midfield, attacking midfield, forward, you know, there's a bit of a gray area. But mm-hmm. this goes from when Mikel Arteta arrived at the end of 2019, and these are all the transfers that the club have made, incoming transfers that the club have made. There are uh, varying um, reports on the cost of some of these transfers. So just for the sake of consistency, I used TransferMarkt, and what they reported were the the transfer fees for all of these players. Uh, These are in euros. Um, so we go through, um, goalkeepers, Arsenal have bought Alex Runerson, Aaron Ramsdale, Matt Turner, David Raya, who we've only paid a 3 million pound loan, loan fee for, but we're going to pay 27 million more uh, for him in the summer. So that takes it to 30 million. So a spending on goalkeepers of 68 million euros. Then you've got defenders. So the defenders um, that we've brought in, Pablo Marie, Gabriel, Cedric was free transfer, Ben White, Takahiro Tomiyasu, Nuno Tavares, uh, Austin Trusty, 
Alexander Zinchenko, Jakub Kivior, and Jurian Timber. A grand total of 212 million euros on defenders. Thomas Partey, um, the big signing in midfield, 50 million euros. Then you've got Albert Sambi Lukonga, Martin Odegaard, Fabio Vieira, Jorginho, Declan Rice. And I just wanted to ask you, because I have Leandro Trossard and Kai Havertz in the midfield section. Mm. So there is there is a difference, isn't there, between a midfielder and, a, and an attacking midfielder? Or is there a difference between an attacking midfielder and a forward, but then there's yeah. also a difference between a forward and a striker, <laughs> right? So I would yes. say, you know, Trossard and Kai Havertz are, to my mind, attacking midfielders slash forwards. But if I had to sort of, would you disagree with the categorization of them I as would, midfielders? I would have Havertz as a midfielder, I think. And I would have Trossard as a forward. Right. Because I'm thinking the majority of Trossard's Arsenal minutes come like in place of Gabriel Martinelli or Eddie Nketiah and Gabriel Jesus last season. Mm. Uh, so I'd probably have Trossard, but Havertz, Havertz has replaced Granit Xhaka as our, as our midfielder, right? Like, yeah. I think I would definitely have Havertz down as a midfielder and, and Trossard yeah, as a as a forward who is you know all that all that time on the wing and, and playing as a false nine. Okay, so let me just take. Trossard out of um, midfield, and I'll put him as a forward, and that changes very slightly. So that's 24 miles. But not by much. Not much. So that's 340. That takes our midfield spend, by the way, total midfield spend, down from 364 million to 340 million, and our spending on forwards from 55.5 million to. 79.5 million. Now, the forwards... Oh, uh, that, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 79.5 million. So the forwards that we have signed, Gabriel Jesus, um, according to transfer marked, 52 million euros. I have rather generously included Marquinhos in here because he was a transfer and we paid actual yeah. money. We paid actual I mean, you've money. Got, you've got Austin Trusty there yeah. as a defender, so Marquinhos yeah. counts. And apparently we paid 3.5 million euros, which seems quite a lot of money to pay for uh, Marquinhos. But, you know, there you go. With the arrival of Trossard uh, as a 24 million uh, euro signing, that takes spending on forwards to 79.5 million pounds, which is... yeah just a little bit above what Arsenal have spent on goalkeepers in that same time yeah. period. It would get you, it would maybe get you one decent forward nowadays. Maybe, maybe. Uh, over the course, yeah, of, of four years. So, I mean, we, we have to make the point, right, that, you know, there was squad building going on. Very often, squads are built by creating a platform, by building a spine and, you know, some of those signings, it's fair to say, have been spinal. Gabriel, uh, your goalkeeper, is, is a kind of spinal signing, you know, because he's going to play every game. And it was Ramsdale, and it's it's now Raya. Declan Rice is in there as well. Martin Odegaard is, is part of your spine as mm -hmm. well. Um, you know, consistent players who are in this team, Ben White, who plays a lot, um, Zinchenko, who plays a lot, right? So the, I, I understand the sort of building back to front element of it. It's also fair to point out that Mikel Arteta has been blessed 
in perhaps a similar way to the way Arsene Wenger arrived and had this incredible back four just sitting there waiting for him to mold them into um, something even better than they already were. You know, he's been blessed with two young, incredible forwards, wingers, Bakayo Saka and Gabriel Martinelli. So that offsets your need to spend. I, I didn't um, include Willian in our list of forwards, but of course he was a, a free transfer in terms of transfer fee anyway. Um, so he doesn't count on that. It does make you think that the next big area for spending is on, is it a forward that Arsenal need or is it a striker? Because again, yeah, that, there's, that's a gonna be... there's a difference, isn't there, between Gabriel mm. Jesus is a forward because he can play as a striker, he can play left, he can play right. Eddie Nketiah, for example, is a striker because that's really his only position. Could he do a job if you put him left or right? Probably. Would he be comfortable doing it? Not really. <laughs> you know, so there, 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 there is a difference, right, between a forward and a striker. That's the big question, like going forward. And, and I guess some of it, that, uh, and, I, and I expect a big signing to probably be made in the summer in, in that area of the pitch. And the big question will be who's available and, and for what price, yeah. right? Like, I think the, the big pot of gold sat in Edu's office uh, that, <laughs> Most of it will be allocated towards somebody who who plays in that final third this summer. Who can they get? Mm. Can they get a striker who's better than Gabriel Jesus for the money that they have? And if they can't, can they get a winger who's better than what we have? Well, I guess in terms of as a backup, someone who can play or compete with and rotate with Saka and with Martinelli as well. Mm -hmm. That's going to be the big question. Um but yeah, like it, it looks odd. It does look odd when you look at it and you've spent in four years over 200 million on defenders, 200 odd million, over 300 million on the midfield. And you've basically bought Gabriel Jesus and Leandro Trossard to play in the final third. Uh, mm. You know, and, and those are obviously the signings that everybody gets really excited about. Who's going to score our goals? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's a tough one. I think I personally I think it's a quirk of this of of a the situation that Mikel Arteta found the squad in and, and Edu uh, when Arteta was appointed, and b a blind luck of who comes out your academy when basically. Mm -hmm. uh, Gabriel Martin, you said three and a half million seems like a lot of money for for Marquinhos. It does. It seems like no money at all for Gabriel Martinelli. And I think when you're buying players out of Brazil for with no professional experience, really, uh, for those sorts of fees, sometimes you'll get a Martinelli, and the other four times out of five, you'll probably get a Marquinhos. Yes, um, and yeah. you know we struck gold with with Gabby. But yeah, like I had a look earlier because we we sort of spoke about this. We touched on this a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah, and I think sort of just before the window opened, and it's been a question I've seen on Twitter a few times over the last year or so. Like, why do we buy so many defenders? Or why have we bought so many defenders under Mikel Arteta? So I just went through today and looked at the last few seasons, uh, you know, from when Arteta arrived. And basically, I think you buy what you don't have. And when Mikel Arteta arrived, we had 
Aubameyang and Lacazette. We had Nicolas Pepe still and couldn't get rid of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we wanted to get rid of him, I think at that point, everyone was still willing to, to give him a chance. Uh, and we had Bukayo Saka breaking into the team. And the defenders with the most minutes in Mikel Arteta's first half a season, um, the Arsenal defenders with the most minutes for the club in the Premier League were David Luiz, Serkalasinac, Socrates. There were 13 Premier League starts for Skodra Mustafi that season. Uh, if you go to <laughs> Mikel Arteta, the next year, Mikel Arteta's first full season, Rob Holding played more outfield minutes than any Arsenal player. We're talking f- three years ago. Rob Holding, 2020-21, Rob Holding played the most outfield minutes of any player at Arsenal in the Premier League. Holy shit. Uh, we had to build the defence first. I think it's that's why the money's gone there, right? Mm. We signed Gabriel. That's with Gabriel at the at the club, by the way. Gabriel signed that summer and Rob Holding played, still played the most minutes of any outfield player for us that season. Uh, Gabriel would have been the other centre or, or one of the other two centre-halves most of the time, I guess. Um Basically, we were we weren't good a few years ago, and you can't fix the whole team at once. And with I think bear in mind that we had Aubameyang and we had Lacazette and we had Pepe, and that we had Saka coming through, and that Martinelli was there. He was injured for quite a while, but he was waiting. Smith Rowe was coming through. He's another one for you. Is he a midfielder or is he a forward? Mm. Discussion maybe probably a bit more midfielder, but but obviously an attacking midfielder and. I think you go through those players that we had when or had just breaking into the team when Arteta arrived and you would look at sort of now in in retrospect, you look at the squad and you'd be like, yeah, defence is the thing they need to spend money on. Sure. I mean, I I completely get what you're saying. I think you're absolutely right when you say you you buy what you don't have. Um, we didn't the, have a lot, by the way. You just can't buy it all at once. No, you can't buy it all at once. And, you know, what we had wasn't good enough and a lot of it needed to be replaced. And some of it was done um, fairly ruthlessly and efficiently. Some of it took a little bit longer. Um, you know, a hangover from some of the, um, you know, some of the previous deals that we had done. But in terms of like an actual strategy, I do wonder if, you know, when you're sitting down to say, how can we rebuild a squad? How do we, how do we create a spine? How do we build a platform for this team to be able to play the kind of attacking football that I want this team to play? Like, there are more defenders out there than there are strikers. Mm-hmm. There are more midfielders out there than there are strikers. I suppose the only, you know, the position that might be a, a sort of analog to it is goalkeepers because, you know, there's a limited supply of goalkeepers and there's a limited supply of goalkeepers who are good enough to play for a top-level team, similarly with strikers. I think there are players who can go and who can score goals, but are there players who can go to top-level teams and be there for five, six, seven seasons and be the guy who can score the goals all the time? Those also- players are, are hard to find, right? Not only are they hard to find, I think the gap between the guy who is so close to being good enough and the guy who is good enough is enormous. And I think that's, you know, we're we're coming up to a point where I think over the last year, because we've been in last season's title race, we've led, led the league for so long. I think we've sort of forgotten how far away we were 18 months ago. And... When we signed him and when in that first six months, Gabriel Jesus was electric for us and he was brilliant. And we're mm. like, wow, we've, like, we've made such an upgrade up front. 
And now he's, if you list that first 11, he's one, maybe in everyone's top two or three of, mm, there's a guy we can find someone better than. And I think that's just how big the jump is from being like, from okay yeah. to really good to, okay, now we're talking Mohamed Salah levels of, of player who's going to win you games on his own, win you trophies, win you league titles. That jump, and then, and I think, you know, because you mentioned the goalkeeper, I think the goalkeeper is a similar thing. There, you can find a lot of all right goalkeepers. You can find quite a lot of really good goalkeepers. And then it's really hard to find a great goalkeeper. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's true at both ends of the pitch. Uh, everywhere else, um, we've seen, you know, the impact that Declan Rice has had this season in terms of results and points, not a not a huge impact and performances as well mm. as a, on a team level. Uh, Declan Rice's individual performances have been exceptional. I think at this stage of the season, you'd have to have him as a contender for the, not the Arsenal, but the Premier League player of the season. It's barely a week's gone by with where he's not been eight, nine, 10 out of 10. Yeah. But if you didn't have Declan Rice, like we didn't last season... I think you can recreate that with two or three players or with a, with your tactics and how you set the team up. And the same with centre-backs. We've got two fantastic centre-backs, but I think you can set up a team to be organised in a different way and to still play out from the back with different patterns in a different way. That's easier to find and easier to find a different way around having that level of talent in those positions than in goal and up front. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah. If you've got, you know, the goalkeeper, uh, I mean, Liverpool are such a great example with Alisson at one end and Salah at the other. Is the it, two of them on their own will win you games. They'll it, win you lots and lots of points. Isn't it amazing though, when you think about it, because you mentioned goalkeepers and there's very good goalkeepers and there's great goalkeepers. And I would say that one of the if you want to call that an advantage, maybe it is, but I think Allison at Liverpool and Ederson at Manchester City, they both have great goalkeepers. And when you think about the fact that Allison was essentially the backup to Wojciech Szczesny at Roma mm. while he was on loan from Arsenal at Roma and Allison was his number two, and he goes to Liverpool and all of a sudden, bang. And similarly to an extent with, with Salah, you know, where he'd been at Chelsea, it hadn't worked out for him. He was at, he was at Roma as well, right? Uh, at Fiorentina on loan and then, and then Roma. Fiorentina on loan, Roma. I saw Jamie Carragher um, on one of their podcasts. He was saying that Jurgen Klopp did not want to sign Mo Salah. He wanted to sign Julian Brandt. Yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't convinced. He wasn't the convinced. They showed him the numbers and talked him into no. This is the guy we really want. So this um, is the guy, and like Jurgen Klopp can now thank him for his career for sure, for <laughs> sure, right? But I mean, imagine you know, it just it just sort of shows you the variance or the sort of slight element of chance that's required. Um, you know, when it comes to squad building, like did Liverpool when they bought Mo Salah think we're getting a guy who's going to be very good in the Premier League? And will score us goals. Did they think they were getting that? I don't know. Did they think they were getting that level of goalkeeper with with Allison? Maybe they did. Maybe I'm doing them a disservice. But you know, the the trajectory of players is is such a fascinating topic and, and discussion. And to think about how a guy here is like average, and a guy goes somewhere else, and all of a sudden blossoms into 
Well, we've seen it, you know, think that Thierry Henry at, at um, Juventus or the, the younger Thierry Henry, you know, we've seen it at Arsenal. Um, so we understand it. But, you know, when it comes to applying that to how you're building a squad now, you can do all your timing. due diligence. Yeah, timing might be part of it. Yeah, Like the timing of things, right? Uh, two players that jumped out to me with this spreadsheet that you put together of, of the players that we signed over the years. Two players that leapt off the screen to me were the combined well, 52 and a half million on Albert Sambi Laconga and Fabio Vieira. I think that Arteta and Edu didn't realise, didn't think we would be as good as we became quite quickly. I think Fabio Vieira signed 12 months earlier, has a very different standing in the Arsenal squad right now. I think right now we don't actually know if Fabio Vieira what his Arsenal career will look like if, he'll, if he's going to be good enough, if he's going to be just a backup, or if he'll become a player in two or three, two years that can rotate with, with Odegaard or compete with Havertz. I don't think we have a clear picture of that right now. I think when Fabio Vieira was signed, we're talking the start of last season, uh, he, he was unfortunate with injuries in pre-season and, and didn't really get going for quite a while. But nobody and that I'm sure includes everybody within the club, expected Arsenal to be in a title race. And I think if Arsenal weren't in a title race, if we'd have picked up 10 fewer points, 15 fewer points last season, we were sort of, you know, top four relatively comfortably, then we would have seen a lot more of Fabio Vieira and he probably would have kicked on and his his development would have been accelerated, Mm. you know. Basically, if he'd have signed 12 months earlier, his Arsenal career, his Arsenal development, I think would look quite different. Um, we signed him when we signed him because that's when he emerged at Porto. That's when we had the opportunity, the money to sign him as well. Uh, but then we got <laughs> stuck is the wrong word, but we found ourselves in a title race last season where we couldn't afford these developmental minutes for a player in midfield where you'd be taking out Erdegaard or taking out Granit Xhaka, who was by far the most experienced player in the entire team. And having a really good season, mm. uh, a couple of times we did do that, and we did play Fabio Vieira in in home Premier League games, and we ended up chasing the games. Uh, not saying that that was his fault, but Brentford, I think Southampton, he started as well. We ended up chasing those games, trying having to come from behind to to try and pick up a result. Yeah, and the sort of slip ups that you can't afford to have a player on the pitch where you're thinking that these minutes will do him really well 12 months down the line. Uh, We needed our best 11 on the pitch every single week. Uh, You know, if we'd have signed Vieira when we were finishing eighth, I think there'd have been a hell of a lot more football for him. And now we'd have, we'd at least know if Fabio Vieira can play first team football for Arsenal regularly, or if he can't, I think right now, nobody really has a proper idea of what role he, at his absolute best, if he fulfills his potential, um, what role he might end up playing yeah. for us. And that's the tricky one. I think it's with the signings. It's it's not just, and, and not just signings, but players like Smith Rowe come through the academy as well, broke through, then gets his injuries. Um, you know, just when it looked like he'd, he'd nailed being a really important member of the team. And because he's injured, we signed Trossard and then Smith Rowe comes back and, He's got someone else to compete with. The timing of these things, I think, can be so, so crucial. And mm. I think that's uh, the interesting one with, with signings like Vieira, Laconga as well. You've, we've spent a fair amount of money. And you look at Vieira and Laconga and you think that's 50-odd million. 
you know, that's fifty million that we could have spent on a forward, for example. Yeah, uh, but the, you buy you buy what you don't have, and we needed you yeah. know that summer we needed to bring in uh, the Lokonga summer anyway. We needed to bring in a, a central midfielder, and I think the 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 idea of it was a good idea. Young, yeah. promising player. He was captain of Anderlecht, and you know it didn't happen. And probably won't happen for him now. But um, yeah, it is. It's just so interesting that sometimes the window of opportunity for a player to make it at a particular club, or even you know, in their in their entire career, can often be really small or arbitrary. Like Ashley Cole getting his opportunity because all of a sudden people realized that Silvino's passport was made out of fucking <laughs> sticky back plastic, and, you know, a stamp that he'd made himself. Uh, you know, oh, look, Silvino's gone to, where'd he go? Celta Vigo, I think it was. You know, just one day he was gone and now we need a left back and Ashley Cole is, you know, ready to jump in and you know, took the took the opportunity by, by storm. Just sort of bringing it back um, to the discussion about forward versus striker does it really matter if it's a forward or a striker in the summer once that player is capable of providing the squad with an upgrade and a consistency in terms of goal scoring because i know there are people who say right we need the figurehead we need the Aussie man we need that guy you know who can who can be the focal point of our attack and as someone like Mo Salah has demonstrated very clearly, you can play all your minutes as a wide forward and still be extraordinary in terms of what you can contribute to your team. Yeah, I think the issue is, like, what do we have already, right? Like, we have Saka, right, so it can't be a right winger. There's no way that anyone's getting him out the side. We have Martinelli on the left, is it competition for Martinelli? But if you're, if we're going to, the sort of outlay we're talking about, the sort of player we're talking about, that's not competition. They're coming to play every, like we're talking about someone, right, who's going to guarantee you 25, 30 goals. That's, that's, no one can guarantee that, but that's the idea of that signing. Well, they're not coming to compete with Martinelli then. They're coming and the place becomes theirs. And I think most Arsenal fans would agree that then, the only thing is number nine. Like yeah. the, the only place that's up for grabs, not up for grabs in terms of let's have a fight and see who wins the place, but you can sign someone and say, you are my number nine or you are my left wing. Like number nine is the one that has not a vacancy, but that's it's there to be taken, I think. Um, Isn't the other point about like, a, you know, a 25, 30 goal a season striker is, you know, part of the reason they score that many goals is because of their quality. But the other reason they score that many goals is because they play all the fucking time. Well, yeah, you're not going to score 30 goals coming off the bench yeah. every other weekend, yeah. right? I think the other thing is, and why, and I've, for a few windows now, I've really wanted us to sign a, a wide player and preferably someone who can play on both flanks. Same. Martinelli and Saka are running to the ground. We've been extremely fortunate not to miss either of them for any extended periods over the or since the start of last season. They've, it, you know, you imagine how much worse our attack might have looked at times if one of them was unavailable, because uh, there's just no depth. There's no one to come in. But we have Gabriel Jesus, 
And mm-hmm. Gabriel Jesus can play on the left and on the right. And if we sign a number nine, I think Gabriel Jesus becomes the de facto backup all across the front three. You know, this time a year ago, I think we were looking at it and we were comparing ourselves a little bit to that situation Liverpool had with Salah, Mane and Firmino mm. uh, in, in Saka, Jesus and Martinelli. And I remember having a conversation with you where we were like, right, so what did what Liverpool did next? They signed Jota, who can be the backup, the rotation for all three of them. Uh, maybe we already have had Jota in Gabriel Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and actually it's his place that... In the in the starting eleven, the first choice of the eleven, it's his place that maybe gets taken, and you end up. Or you know, you obviously you'll, you'll compete with Martinelli on the left. Some will start some games, someone else will start other games. It means a break for Saka here or there on the right, possibly. But it, to me, yeah, it screams our team right now that we sign that big goaler game number nine that we all dream of, yeah. and Jesus can then be everybody's cover and competition across the front three. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've, I've said is that we, you know, in the front three, we're a bit five foot nine. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I know we have Kai Havertz and I know he can play up there, um, but I do think that that he's is... he's not scoring a goal a game. No, he's not. No, um, I wish he would, but I don't think that's a, a realistic thing to expect from him. So, look, it is one of those that we're going to have to wait and see how the club uh, deal with it in the summer. I do have a few questions here from our Discord. So just to finish off, I just want to uh, whack through a couple of these because um, there's a couple of good talking points. Small Club 27 says, can the lack of activity in the transfer market in January, uh, he's talking about, be considered a lack of ambition by the club? We're still in the title race an addition here or there could get us to where we need to be while most English clubs have been quiet in this window it feels like this could be a missed opportunity so um, how do you view that one in the I think you have to look at it in the context of what's happened in the market mm-hmm. itself this month as well a lack Not- of is it a lack of ambition or a lack of opportunity uh, yeah and, and if nobody's signing anyone good then I think the most the most logical explanation is that nobody could for sale or, or not at a price that anyone can afford. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's come up a few times, this, the financial fair play thing, uh, the Premier League are not bluffing. <laughs> it's pretty clear by now, uh, as any Everton fan will attest to, and, and Forrest obviously joining them now as well. Mm-hmm. And it was mentioned back when we signed David Raya, right, in the summer, that that was done as a loan because we were not a million miles away from breaching that, that Premier League financial fair play um, restrictions. So, you know, next year, next year's accounts will have Champions League football on them and and that sort of thing. So, I think by next year we'll sort of not be as close as we are now uh, of running afoul of those. But I think um, my my suspicion is that we can't, we actually don't have the money without breaking some rules somewhere uh, to make a big signing. Yeah, I, th- I and, think... And the, money, and the money required to f- make a signing that would actually make us better is significant money. Well, that's it. You know, it is... Look, you can say it's a lack of ambition not to do something this, uh, this January. If we don't get to where we need to go, you could level that accusation at the club. But can you really suggest there is a lack of ambition, generally speaking, when... Arsenal spent over £100 million on someone like Declan Rice in the summer. Mm. I don't think those two things are 
Uh, you can't square that circle for me. I think the club have spent a lot, as we've laid out in this conversation. They have maybe not spent as much on forwards as we would like, but, you know, 200 million plus on defenders, 350 million on midfielders, 70 million on goalkeepers. The lack of, it's not a question of um, not spending. You can question how some of it was spent, of course, but I don't think you can question the the desire to to strengthen the squad and 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 bring people in. To me, it all comes down to um, opportunity, as you say, this month. Because who is there, and how much would they cost? Could you do something? Sure, but you know, the same people who would bemoan a lack of ambition would certainly be the first to get on the back of a player who isn't good enough. And isn't playing and, you know, you bought that guy because there was a clamor for a signing and now he's not good enough and he's on a four-year deal. He can't get rid of him. That doesn't make sense either. We've done, we've made that mistake too many times. So I don't really see this January as, as, a, as a lack of ambition. I think going back maybe to the return of, of Thomas Partey, I think that gives us certainly a little bit more. Uh, a little bit more depth in the at the top end of the field. If you consider this is an Arsenal team uh, right now with Partey back that could choose a front five from Rice, Odegaard, Smith-Rowe, Trossard, Havertz, uh, Saka, Martinelli, Jesus, Nketiah. That's 10 players. So there's no lack of depth and no lack of, of I mean, there are players, as we said, who could be upgraded on, but... You know, there are plenty of options there for for Mikel Arteta. Um, where was this question? Uh, Electric Soup was asking about Charlie Patino doing well at loan on Swansea this year. Four goals and four assists in 23 games. Is that enough for him to come back and push for a place? Or failing that, what would you expect to get for a Charlie Patino in the transfer market in the summer? Oh, uh, I, I think that whatever we'd hope to get for him would only rise with some Premier League experience really um like I struggle to I struggle to think many teams would spend 10 million or north of 10 million on Charlie Patino when he's not played in the Premier League um and the leap I mean we're talk- we mentioned Fabio Vieira there and he came from a Porto side competing for a title and playing in a competitive top league in Europe um you know playing in the Champions League Europa League and Fabio Vieira looks like he's a bit off the pace uh, at times in an Arsenal shirt. So I think Patino is a, a best case scenario a couple of years away from competing to for minutes at Arsenal in, in the Premier League mm. and not just in cup competitions. Um, and worst case scenario would be like another loan at the in the championship next season. Like the, the perfect situation probably is that we can loan him to a Premier League club. But I mean, you know, Swansea... Uh, doing okay in the championship they're on mid-table and you look at Burnley this season who ran away with that league last year and the, you just see the gap yeah be able to play at Premier League level and compete at Premier League level the gap between doing it every week in the championship and doing it in the top flight is is not only big but it's getting bigger and bigger every year yeah I do wonder as well if there's a contract situation with Patino whether we've got a plus one year mm. option um I'm not 100% sure exactly when his uh when his I think he's got one year left at Arsenal. So is he going to sign a new deal if he's going to be a couple of years away from competing for a first team place? Maybe not. So uh I wouldn't be surprised to see him moved on in the summer. Uh Rad B says any thoughts on the lottery that is ex-players going into management? 
Xabi Alonso's killing it at Leverkusen, whereas uh, Frank Lampard struggled everywhere. Players like Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira and Rooney couldn't necessarily translate their brilliance on field to off. There's a there's a trend of it's holding midfielders, isn't it? They they all watch the game, they see the game on the pitch. Mm. They're the the orchestrators that holding midfield position, Busquets, that 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 sort of player. That's what Guardiola was. That's what Mikel Arteta was. That's what Xabi Alonso was. That's what Xabi Alonso was, yeah, to or to varying degrees, obviously. What Lee um, Carsley? Yeah. <laughs> but did, did he not win the win the under twenty one Euros with England in the summer? I, I believe think so. so. Is he? I, I saw some talk. He's going to be the new Irish manager as well. Ah, okay. But yeah, I think a lottery is probably quite a good way to put it. There are obviously different ways of managing different styles and. Yeah, Lampard's probably one that surprises me that he wasn't a that he hasn't seemed to have been a, a better manager. Um why? Because I thought I thought watching Frank Lampard that he really understood the game mm. <laughs> and that's not to say that he doesn't. Um but I thought Frank Lampard whereas maybe like that that eternal Lampard Gerard discussion whereas Gerard was maybe a bit more blood and thunder and passion and emotion and heaps and heaps of talent to go with it all I thought Lampard was a lot more sort of considered in his movement and and finding space on the pitch and that and that kind of thing and sort of a player who has to maybe a little bit less gifted um physically and, and uh, Maybe has to understand the game a little bit better than than Gerard, for example, did to have the career that careers that they had respectively. Um, but yeah, like, I don't. Think, it's not an accident, certainly, that holding midfielders, slow holding midfielders, appear to be the best manager. That Jorginho, watch this space. Yeah, I'm very interested to see what happens with um, with Cesc Fabregas. Very. Because he's now the, the, the going to take Como over again in the summer because he's had to he doesn't have the badges so he's had to give it up for the second half of the season. Yeah, there's a, uh, a Welsh guy yeah. called Oshan uh, Oshan uh, Roberts is his name, um, who's the head coach with with Cesc as his number two. I was looking up uh, Como uh, FC and was uh, staggered to see that their president is Dennis Wise. Of all people. Well, and Cesc uh, and, and Thierry, Thierry are co-owners, in, yeah, right? Yeah. Investors anyway. I don't know if they're well, yeah. quite the co-owners, but certainly there is a a consortium um, who own uh, who own the club and they're involved in that or they certainly have an ownership stake in that. But I think I mean, he Cesc- will be a very interesting one to keep an eye on because if you... If you talk about somebody who can who understood the game, I think whenever I whenever I see Cesc talk about football and the bits of, of punditry that he's done, I think he's been really, really interesting. Um, I know a lot of punditry, um, and I'm not making excuses for 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 some of them, but I know a lot of a lot of it doesn't go beyond the very basic. But sometimes when you hear Sesk talk about the game or certain things that are going on uh, that are going on in games. It's just a little bit different from from some of the others. Very, I think, very interesting listening to him about coaching and, and managers. Um, mm. He seems very uh, anti. It's like too strong a word, but like at least like a bit of a counter movement to to this Guardiola positional. Everyone has their strict. You have to be here hit then, and then you have to move there when he has the ball. Like I've seen him speak, and he. Uh, 
sounds much more, you know, Wenger like in mm. giving the players the freedom to find the solutions themselves. Um, and that, and that'll be interesting. Like, there are no, there in European football anyway, there are very few teams that that play like that nowadays that give players that freedom I, to, I, to move around. I don't and think you can. Obviously, obviously, Cesc played the best football of his career and, and flourished in given that, that license, the keys to the team. And it, it would be very interesting if he can get his hands on a, you know, at Como, I'm sure we'll learn a lot. But if he can get his hands on a, a team of really talented players who can really compete at a high level, and if whether it comes to it nowadays, if he'd actually give them that freedom, well, that's or it. If he'd have to sort of say, no, actually, we need to be a little bit more disciplined. Yeah, this. yeah. I mean, it, it, it's you do wonder what the experiences of a you know a, a kid who grew up in La Masia and then came to Wenger's Arsenal and went back to Barcelona under Guardiola. Mm. Uh, I know it didn't really, I think he was only there a year um, yeah. under Guardiola and it didn't go as well as he would like. And then, of course, as much as we hate to remember it, the, the time with Mourinho uh, at Chelsea. And Conte like, as well. Yeah, to, to what extent do those coaching influences influence or will they influence his, his own style? And I think there is discussion to be had, which, uh, you know, we're, we've gone beyond the point where we can have it now. We probably need to research a little bit more, but but sort of the cerebral element of coaching where I don't think your traditional English coach can operate at the highest level of the game right now. Like, if you go back to your... Alan Pardews, your Sam Allardyce's, those guys who were effective within a, a certain time period and their own experiences allowed them to to sort of counteract perhaps some of the, um, I don't want to say technical or tactical advancements in the game, but I think you really have to be cerebral now to be at the very top of, of the coaching game. Yeah, yeah. Look, that's. I mean, I mean, you don't have to listen to many Premier League managers, uh, and they take it incredibly seriously. And mm. you can tell they don't think of anything else all day long than yeah. and how to set the teams up. But it, you know, I think that Cesc thing could be interesting because at the end of the day, if you've got good players, they'll stick the ball in the goal. Well, that's it. Okay, final final one uh, from Solaris. He said, it's not a question. Just consider this an open invite to talk about Leah Williamson's return and an absolute corker of an assist. Last night, she provided a ball over the top, which Beth Mead absolutely cracked into the back of the net as Arsenal women beat Reading 6-0 in the Conti Cup. Um, great to see her back after nine months out with an ACL. Um, it takes time and you've got to be patient. <laughs> you've got to put the work in. Uh, but great to see her back and hopefully uh, she can sort of kick on from here and continue to contribute throughout the season. Oh yeah, hopefully she can kick on. Hopefully a boost for the the WSL title mm. aspirations, um, and in the FA Cup too. I'm delighted for her on a personal level as a fellow Guna that she finally gets to play at a packed Emirates when when Man United uh, come down south next month. And I think you as a as a, I think it's fair to say, a, a fairly good golf player will appreciate that assist more than most. The, the backspin on the ball for it to just stop dead in Beth Mead's par. Yeah, I wish I could do that with the golf ball. Uh, <laughs> I swear. Uh, yeah, a brilliant pass. I mean, and, and that's been you know part perhaps of what Arsenal have been 
just missing with Leah Williamson, but that that range of passing from the back and she picks the ball up, get, you know, strides into midfield and she can play those passes and, and play them with accuracy. And what it gives you as an attacking team is is just a different kind of threat. Yeah, absolutely. And just the flexibility, you know, to be able to play midfield as well. I think mm. the, the women's team are really dependent on the availability and the form of, of Leah Volti. Um, and there are, Obviously, no player is, is always going to be fit to play 100% of the games. And Arsenal have had Lotta Woburn Moy step up at the back this season brilliantly and another Guna. And if that allows further down the line, you know, time for Leah Williamson to move into midfield when needed, mm-hmm. um, as well as being exceptional as, as a centre half and playing out as a, defensively as a centre half, as well as playing out from the back. Yeah, it's. Yeah massive news to, to have about it sure is and uh the women have a, a very big game this weekend against liverpool away so let's hope they can uh continue that goal scoring form and let's hope we can do that as well uh, we'll talk a little bit next week lewis obviously we'll preview the uh the forest game for our patreon members for now though we better leave it there as ever thank you very much cheers thank you and have a nice weekend there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of? Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Thank you very much indeed to Lewis. You can find him on Twitter. He is at LG Ambrose, at LG Ambrose. And of course, he's with us over on Patreon to help us preview all of our Premier League and Champions League games. That's patreon.com forward slash arsblog. We will be previewing Nottingham Forest on Monday afternoon, so do join us for that. Not to mention that this week we will be giving you a double helping 
of Arscast Extra. First on Sunday, you can join myself and James for what would have been the usual Monday show, but for various reasons involving travel and things like that. We're going to do it for you on Sunday, and then we'll have a post-Nottingham Forest Arscast Extra for you, and we'll explain why we're doing the double show this week as well. So please do join us for that. In the meantime, thank you so much as always for being here. Hope you enjoyed the show. Have a great weekend and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Arsenal are back from their warm weather trip in Dubai, some training and team bonding, and there's been a lot of coverage of the Arsenal team having dinner at one of the city's trendiest restaurants. It's called Flan, with their extravagant head chef, who's known colloquially as Custard Baby. He goes from table to table, pouring custard from a platinum engraved jug, and we're delighted to welcome Custard Baby to Sky Sports News. Yes, thank you. So what was on the menu for the Arsenal players in your restaurant? Well, we have the starter, of course, which is a sea scallops, which is served with celeriac puree and custard. Then to clear the palate, we have a kind of a moose bush situation. We have kangaroo testicles poached in ladybird's tears and served with kumquat and whale's fin and, of course, custard. The uh, main course is a 28-day aged ribeye beef served with frog leg porridge, watercress horseradish, and custard. Then for the dessert we have salted caramel goat's cheese ice cream. This is served on top of sponge, garnished with black cherries, and served with chocolate hazelnut sauce. Not custard? No, we have custard with everything else. Why you have custard with dessert? Do you think I'm some sort of crazy man? Thank you very much indeed to Custard Baby. Coming up next on Sky Sports News, Manchester United midfielder Casemiro opens up on just how much he loves custard. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.